Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're very welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and this week it's an interview with Reggie Goodbody, and it was recorded in 2007 while I was traveling around the shores of Loch Derg compiling a collection of interviews with people living in the towns and villages that surrounded the lake. So on the 7th of the 7th, 2007, a very significant date, I visited the home of the Good Bodies at Hazel Point in Ballycommon. Reggie Goodbody here on the shores of Loch Derg. Certainly a fabulous place to have a house, Reggie, and a beautiful place indeed. Uh, yes, uh, we're lucky. It's, um, we look out on a sort of middle quarter of Loch Derg, and uh, although it's a northerly aspect, it's, it's very attractive. All through the year, so you know we enjoy it. Mm. Retired here now, and um, we were in the boat building business for 21 years up in Portumna, and we decided to come down here and settle around this part of the world. And the interview begins with the family history, which can be traced back to 1650. Well, we're not absolutely certain, but they came to Ireland about 1650s. Uh, there are theories that they came from around Norfolk or maybe from somewhere around Yorkshire, but we, we haven't been able to trace it, although we know an awful lot about the family. Uh, one of the reasons we know a lot about the family is the they were Quakers from the beginning. Uh, John Goodbody, who was the first one, was a member of the Society of Friends, and they kept very, very good records. And the fortunate thing was that those records weren't burst, burnt in the Customs House in the 1920 Troubles. So um, the original records about John Goodbody, who refused to pay tithes because uh, to the established church at the time because of his principles, and he went to jail um, for that uh, in Philpstown, or Dangan as it now is, and that is all recorded. So he, uh, he had another, he had two sons and then a grandson, and then the next man of importance was Robert Goodbody, who uh, was in business in uh, Mount Medic. And Robert Goodbody had um, five sons, uh, known as the Five Brothers, and they were the entrepreneurs of that day, uh, in that they were involved in flour milling, because Robert Goodbody came to Clara to set up, well, he bought out the Erie Maribor Estates under the Encumbered Estates Act, and he... um, he set up uh, the big flour mill, which was the uh, the 
uh, the area mill, Charlestown Mill. There's about seven mills in Clara altogether. And he uh, eventually bought out some of the other backers who were the Pym family. And uh, they they set up, they became the biggest flour millers in the country mm-hmm. um, until they finally sold out to ranks in 1929, I think it was, when my grandfather died uh, just after that from TB. But the... Um, those five brothers set off in, uh, they set up various businesses. One was flour. The other was the jute factory, JNLF Goodbody. Um, then there was TP&R Goodbody, who were uh, uh, tobacco, in the handmade tobacco business, and they were quite substantial. They were in, in Mount Melick, and no, tell them all. Um, then there were uh, A&L Goodbody, Alfred and Lewis, and they set up the uh, what is now the A&L Goodbody solicitors firm. Uh, another branch of the family went into stockbroking, and they uh, were good body in Webb, I think it was. But they, were, they um, because the Robert Goodbody of that generation, this is about early 1900s or late 1800s, wanted to marry his deceased wife's sister, which you couldn't do under Irish law at the time. So he emigrated to America, and they set up, uh, they got, uh, they, well, they actually, there was some marriage with the Dows, I can't, I don't know exactly about it, as, and you've taken it slightly off guard, but uh, they were very, very substantial stockbrokers over there, and we went to visit them in 1967, and they had 90 branches. So, you know, they were big. They were the f- fifth biggest stockbrokers in the United States. And uh, that was because of, of normally of Irish law at the time. Um, but my grandfather ended up as the managing director of the flour mills, uh, which was um, MJNL Goodbody. And he, um, times were very difficult. Uh, there was flour was being dumped into Ireland from, from Liverpool, basically, by ranks and other flour millers. And uh, the family finally decided that they'd sell out. So they sold out to uh, to ranks. And several of them went and joined, you know, became work, you know, employed in ranks as managers and various things. And my grandfather died in 1933. In the middle of the 19th century, Reggie Goodbody's ancestors were flour millers in Clarin County Offaly. Milling business was very tough at the time. Uh, and also, the problem with the family business was that they all, it's fine when it starts off in the first couple of generations, but eventually when it gets down to the fourth or fifth generation, the shareholding is so uh, spread out that it's very hard to raise capital to reinvest it in. The other thing was, uh, in those days, it was an extraordinary situation where that business was used as a sort of family bank. So all the purchasing for the houses in Clara uh, was done through the mill office. and um, Because the... Goodbody owned quite a number of the houses there. They did, yes. Yeah. There were, my grandmother was, I think, the 12th or 13th Mrs. Goodbody to live in Clara when she got married. Yeah. Uh, and there was a sort of uh, pecking order in the hierarchy. I can tell you tea parties were fairly serious business. <laughs> and so were tennis parties. Um, but they, and do you think that was the reason why? It was a contribution, yes. The affluence and the way of living. In it. No, no, they, I mean, they weren't, they weren't extravagant. I mean, the, the big uh, treat was to go on a, on, a, on a cruise somewhere, you know. But otherwise, they, I mean, they used to, they used to shoot around there. Uh, my 
Uh, they played tennis a lot. They had their own cricket team, uh, extraordinary enough. Um, and basically that's what they did. And they lived a very much a sort of... Uh, when my um, grandfather's brother wrote a diary, he said that before the motor car came in, the catchment area of families that they knew because was sev- effectively seven miles from Clara. And that was as far as a horse would go and come back. So that was your social thing. After that, you went by train. Uh, and they used the trains an awful lot. In fact, the, the train was brought through Clara by the family. Um, but they, um, they only knew about 43 families altogether. So yeah. you had a lot of milling uh, businesses in the area, people involved in milling. Yes. Um, you know, the Quakers were, uh, were the dominant... Uh, uh, you know, in in in, in flour milling in Ireland, yeah. uh, and all the way down, you know, South Tipperary and or you know Kilkenny, and they were in in all sorts of places. Um, the uh, the family uh, only some of them went into milling. A lot of the awful lot of others went into other businesses, mm. and um, because they um, they really didn't go into the forces, they wouldn't swear oaths. So therefore, that more or less kept the family in business, and that's why the Quakers have more or less kept in business. Because um, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't go into the army, uh, although uh, they did. Some of them did later on, you know, when the mm-hmm. wars broke out. Um, it, the, the Quakers were uh, uh, heavily involved in financing the rail uh, railways in Ireland, and in my uh, my great great grandfather was heavily involved, and also his his father before him was involved in um, James Perry. He was also a big financier of the railways over here. Which would have been probably the the Great Southern Western Railways. That's right. Time. Yes, yeah. And then they uh, they had interests uh, with the Malcolmson family down in Port Law, uh, uh, James Perry and, and Malcolmson. I think it's David Malcolmson were both involved in in very big mining operations in the Ruhr, in in Germany. Um, uh, but that all suddenly came to an end. They, they sold out of the Franco-Prussian War. They did very well, but after that, it went down. And the, when the tobacco factory burnt in, in Tullamore, they went back and um, they moved it to Dublin, and it, it wasn't successful in Dublin. So then a lot of those members, um, you know, the, the, suddenly the whole thing was, uh, the houses, were, a lot of them were sold off very quickly. The 19th century was a very busy place on Loch Derg with the barge boats servicing the mills and um, the Grand Canal built a store not too far away from Reggie and his family were living in Drummoneer. But the original store still survives, it's now a hostel and it's in Drummoneer. But the Grand Canal store was built about the 1850s or thereabouts and and they, that was, uh, you know, the barges used to call in here. There were 12 carters uh, working backwards and forwards between Nina and Drummoneer. In fact, at one stage it was considered that they might build a canal between Drummoneer and Nina uh, because mm. there was a lot of flour. There were a whole lot of mills. I think there was, oh, there's a large number of flour mills all around this immediate area on the Nina River. And they were exporting flour from, from this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that was... Uh, there was a big traffic in, 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 in with barges. But all that died when CIE came in, the railways took it over. And then the, they, they have, eventually CIE bought the Grand Canal Company just to put them out of business, and the barges stopped. You can see them floating around as, as conversions today for private use. But the, um, now, the weekends, we see quite a few boats. But the, there's a 
enormous growth in water activities uh, in the last 20, 25 years. I mean, it's hundreds, hundreds and hundreds percent growth. Uh, when I was a youngster, I went up the river with an old uh, man and he'd, we went up as crew in a small cruiser and we got up to Lock Key and it was in July and we were the first private boat to go through Lock Knock Vicar Lock in Lock Key in 1952 or 53 that year. My goodness, yeah. So it's now 7,000 so, a year going through. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, yeah. do yourself. So change, change times indeed. Yeah. Huge, huge yeah. change, yeah. yes, yeah. Reggie Goodbody now talks about his own life and his early childhood memories of growing up on the shores of Loch Derg. I uh, was born in 1940, so we actually lived just up the lake here at Kilgarvan, which is about eight miles away. Uh, and, and it's sort of extraordinary that we've actually come back within eight miles where we were born. Uh, have been around the place since. But... Um, so your father, yeah. did he spend uh, his days here on the shores of Loch Derg uh, in, in Kilgarvan? Yes, uh, in 19, moved down there in 1942, I think it was, or f- yes, 42. I can, one of my first memories is moving down there. It must have been a major thing in my life, as it was. But I can actually have a, uh, have a, a slight memory of there being in a certain part of the house in Gil- Waterloo Lodge yeah. uh, in an old Ford truck. Um, and the whole household belongings were all around me. Not that there was not a lot, but uh, I can remember that. But we lived there till about nineteen forty nine, I think it was, and I went off to school for a year, and then I came back, and we moved on to a boat called the Phoenix. So uh, we lived on that for two and a half years, complete, you know, full time, and then every Christmas holidays, Easter holidays, summer holidays, for another five or six years after that. Living on, on, on a boat in in uh, in, in yes. yes. So, um, I think education was required at that stage, and it wasn't great. <laughs> so, uh, I uh, my parents decided to move to Dublin, and I left school at the age of sixteen and went off to England. And I worked in England in the timber trade for five years in Worcester and Nottingham, and then I came back in nineteen sixty. Growing up in the Quaker tradition, I asked Reggie Goodbody why he didn't decide uh, to join the family business and continue with the Quaker uh, ethos. Well, I never actually worked for the family. I was offered, I was asked, would I go into JNL of Goodbody as a sort of 16 year old? And uh, as I didn't have a penny to my name, I didn't think I'd have much say in the company uh, and I think probably was the right decision so I went off to the timber trade in England. My brother did actually go into the company for two years and worked in the Slane manufacturing plant up in Slane and then he went off to England and became a stockbroker so and that's what he did for the rest of his life. Um, but they they did actually um, they did you know they did they were ahead of their time they were way ahead of their time in the way they sort of treated people as individuals and uh, they had, uh, I think there was a nurse in Clara for our, in the factory, you know, mm-hmm. way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they they did all sorts of things to try and make, you know, treat people reasonably. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't always done. Mm-hmm. And um, they, uh, I think they were, but so did the Cadburys and so did the, uh, you know, the others and so did, 
uh, other people, I mean, Lever Brothers were the same, and they weren't Quakers, but um, they did the same in Liverpool, you know. So there was a... Uh, I suppose today you'd have a personnel department, and but now you, that sort of thing doesn't really happen, you know. You're, yeah. you're out on your own, more or less. Do you think your father was a little bit different in that uh, he did not go into the family business and then he, he didn't join any of the Good Body group? Uh, he went out on his own. He decided to become uh, involved in the railways. And, and why do you think that well, was? Well, he only stayed in the railways for his apprenticeship and then after that until he became an, qualified as an engineer. And then he went out and he went in with, uh, I think, Jane... Uh, one of the Perry family, anyway, in a firm. They had a company called Perry and Goodbody who had various agencies. And eventually he worked uh, in the machine. He had agencies. I mean, he built the cable car going up to um, Brayhead. Uh, He also built the one down into Dursey Island, which still operates. Uh, And the cement, there's another cable car which had cement works in Platten for bringing stuff from the quarries. And then I can remember one that was put in to reinforce the banks of the Shannon down below Killaloo when I was, you know, a youngster. But then he was involved with a firm called T.G. Aston, and they were had machinery agencies for various other machines. And he was basically, you know, calling and selling machinery and various things. He, uh, the, one of the agencies he had was a British Ropeway Engineering Company. They represented them in Ireland. It was a time when big English companies and other companies in the world would get somebody in Ireland to go around and do the marketing, do the selling, mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of look after the operation. And then he, um, finally, he went out on his own, oh, I can't remember, something back in the 70s, when did you After he retired? Yes, after, yeah. you know, he, he, um, he, so he did that for seven or eight years, and finally he retired. When Reggie Goodbody returned from England in 1960, he found work with a company making boxes just off O'Connell Street called Leg Brothers. And eventually I ended up being manager of that. But the box build business was very skilled, very handmade, very hand, um, intensively hand assembled. And we used to make all the bread trays for Johnson Mooney's, Kennedy's. Uh, um, Downs as bakeries and all these various people. Mm-hmm. In fact, there, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, something that would be well worth researching because mm-hmm. I'm one of the few people who know very much about it mm-hmm. in Ireland. Uh, there were only ourselves and one other big company, James O'Keefe, uh, in East Road and or East Wall Road. They had a big box-making section. And then there was one other place in Cork, and nobody else made boxes. So, I mean, this was quite unique in Ireland. Yeah, and I suppose you were the Smurfits of, of the time in, in the packaging business, in the box business, you know. Uh, well, Smurfits uh, started uh, up at the same time, but they, he went yeah. a lot further. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember a bit of a packaging show. Anyway. Who, were the, who were the employers who were employing you? Well, the company was quite interesting because it belonged to a lady called Sheila Connolly, and she was a direct descender of Speaker Connolly uh, of Castletown in Selbridge. And her father had built most of the churches on the north side of Dublin, uh, around uh, Glasnevin and that part of the world. And during the First World War, he built them on fixed-price contracts. And as a result of that, uh, there was huge inflation, apparently, just after the First World War. And he went effectively bust, uh, because he wouldn't, uh, you know, he couldn't get a thing. So... His um, 
his daughter was Sheila Connolly, who was an extremely talented woman, and the whole family were very bright, and they were in all sorts of key positions uh, in the country. But she ended up with this small box-making operation in Hill Street, and um, just, I think, uh, the week before the Second World War was declared, they landed a large uh, shipload of timber, because we used to buy timber by the shipload as a company. Uh, these are small freighters coming in from Scandinavia. But they managed to get that, and they, they brought it up, and they held it in their yard all through the war. And that's how they kept going, because it was a basic raw supply, and it was required for all sorts of things. I mean, in the early days, when I first went there, I can remember butter boxes being made, which, you know, of a particular shape. Oh, yes. Um, there's, I mentioned the Coca-Cola boxes, which are very intensive. All the beer coopers, all the bread trays, and then there were uh, boxes, handmade boxes made for firms like um, Harry Clark, who did all the stained glass windows, which are famous in Ireland. But we used to make all those boxes so that these could be packed up and export. Unfortunately, yeah, that's fascinating. Yes, I never yeah. actually saw. I mean, I've seen the windows since, but I didn't realize the mm. significance of the time. Um, and then. Um, we uh, the the when I went into that sawmill, it was an old, very old machinery. I mean, it was Victorian in some cases, and was worked with line shafting. Uh, we had our own wooden um, box uh, boxboard printing machines. We had two of them. Um, there were a couple of bandsaws, and my job basically was to modernise that machine, that factory, which I uh, did in conjunction with somebody else who was the managing director of the place. And um, we got it up, and we, we instead of having earthenware floors and all the dirt mm -hmm. being thrown onto them, we actually got concrete floors into the whole place, which mm -hmm. is a huge advantage. And then we got forklifts and uh, all sorts of stuff. So it was actually quite an interesting yeah. exercise. And uh, suddenly the box business went out of business because plastics came in. And Guinnesses, who were the biggest customers, decided they were going to change everything over to plastics. And that was the end of the original uh, wooden beer cooper and uh, Coca-Cola boxes, the Fanta boxes, uh, Williams's boxes and all the wine boxes and everything else. They they continued on, but they were so small it wasn't going to keep that operation going. And it was also the time when in the centre of Dublin, uh, all these little uh, effectively backstreet industries, which were employing a lot of people, but it was a humming part of the world around Mountjoy Square and Parnell Street, which is where the Leg Brothers plant was, but they were doomed because of space and because of uh, traditions that couldn't be broken and all sorts of other problems. So uh, uh, we, I, I left there and I went down and I set up a sawmill down in uh, Glenealy. And um, we cut up pallet wood there and eventually we left that in 1979 and came to Portumna to actually set up our own boatyard, my wife and I. And we ran that for 21 years. So I asked Reggie how he got into boat building in the first place. Well, it's quite interesting. Um, I had fitted out um, a small yacht, which I, my fun was with my family was on the lakes. I've always been interested in boats. I've had all sorts of heritage boats. And um, we, we bought this plastic hull. It was a small yacht, 28-foot yacht. And I fitted it out up in the mountains in Wicklow, 700 feet above sea level. It must have amused um, many an airline pilot flying over to see what the hell a boat was doing up at 700 feet. But um, I fitted it out, and we brought it down to the Shannon, and it was, um, it was remarked on down here. 
and Emerald Star Line, which was a Guinness company, were looking at that stage to um, build boats or fit out uh, motor cruisers in Ireland and then export them to France, where they had acquired several uh, companies. And they had they got to know about this yacht, and they approached me to see whether I'd be interested. So I said, yes, this was the opportunity, and it was luck, if you like. And they bought a big old Armstrong factory in, in Portumna, and they leased out a small section to us in 1979. And we started up there from a literally totally bare factory building, and we started fitting out boats, which we had to fit them out to the same standards as the English boats that were coming in here. And they very decently gave us, you know, an order for two or three boats a year, which was very good. There was, uh, we were paid very well, which you know was superb payments. It wasn't very profitable, but it was everything was very straight dealing, and it was a delightful company to work for. And then overnight, uh, Ernest Saunders sold off the um, the um, French companies that Guinnesses had uh, acquired, and suddenly they were left with Emerald Starline. And Emerald Starline, um, so the business that we would have been sort of encouraged to set up was going to run out of a market. So we decided immediately that we'd have to get into whatever repair work we could do. Mm-hmm. And... We did, and eventually we ended up doing very, very little business with Emerald Starline, finally, when we closed down 21 years later. But we did, um, we, we used to do fiberglass repairs on damaged boats that came in. We did very high-quality spray, uh, spray painting work on, on you know, old boats that had got a bit tired. We did, obviously, woodwork. We would do engineering work as well. We were using about seven different trades in a, involved in a boat because remember a boat is uh, it seats six people and sleeps them and it has to have central heating pressurized hot and cold water probably two loos cooking and upholstery and high quality joinery and this is what we set out to do in Portumna and we did that we we produced boats up to the same quality as the English were producing bring them in here and just for about uh, it was very hard to make any money but that's what we were doing but we also uh, repaired boats. We also did a thing called osmosis treatment, which was uh, something that you get blisters on fiberglass boats, and we used to do that. And then we would work with steel, we would work with timber, we would work with fiberglass. So we became very, um, very wide skills. And then um, we became the first uh, boatyard in Ireland and the only boatyard to have ISO 9002 quality standard. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did our work to that sort of standard. At the age of 60, uh, we decided that we were that the ISO 9000 paperwork was becoming so mind-boringly boring that we really weren't going to put up with that for much longer. And there was so much other red tape coming in, uh, CE marking was coming into boats. Now, we were building boats for uh, sea angling, which were going out on the Atlantic, and we were getting them licensed to go out to 40 miles in some cases, which was a very high standard anyway. Um, and we built boats for the diving uh, operators mm. as well. And we, did, we built some private boats. But we built about, I think, in all over the years, we built 40 to 50 boats altogether, um, mm. which with a small staff of five or six people was you know, some achievement. 
But we just felt that it was getting so uh, difficult. In the age of 60, you don't quite have the energy levels and the enthusiasm to go out in a wet November morning and shift another bulky boat up a main road, you know, a couple of hundred yards with a tractor. So the, 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 some of the loss was going off it a bit. So we decided to pack it up and we um, retired from business. And we have now had seven years of really good quality life uh, because nowadays all the youngsters start and they go through school and they get their exams, they work hard and they get the good results. They go to college and then they have a year off and they go to Australia. And they, do, they don't do a tap of work till about 23 or 24. Well, I missed out on that. I started working at the age of 16 and so did my wife. So we decided we'd have a bit of uh, quality time at the end of our lives. Now, on his retirement, he didn't give up boat building and built one of the fastest boats on the lake. We actually built a boat at one stage. I think you've found out something about this. But we built a boat which was a, a, a 30 knot, um, it's known as a barrel back, and I'll show it to you afterwards. But it was uh, American design, very fast uh, launch. It's about 30 foot long, 200 horsepower diesel. And it was built of composite construction, composite construction. And I did it as an exercise because we had a very good lad working with us and I wanted to show him how you built a boat from a literary sheet of paper. So we set out to doing this and we had great fun putting this machine together. About, a th- I suppose, about a thousand hours of work altogether. We did it, you know, weekends and evenings and all sorts of things. And it, it is extremely fast. I mean, 30 knots is equivalent to 50 kilometres. And uh, that's quite quick, particularly when you're going across the water. So I used to use it occasionally from going from here to Portumna. And uh, it was glorious going up there on your own at 8 o'clock in the morning or half past 7 uh, and arriving in So you, you commuted up and down from there? Yeah, not too often, but it was a good thing to go to the pub in. And uh, I had a lot of fun out of it. And now that's, you know, that's we still yeah. have it all. I'll, I'll get rid of it sometime. But uh, we have something else now, which is, um, you know, yeah. sa- motor sailing and more suitable form. We've come to the end of this week's interview with Reggie Goodbody. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to hear more of the interviews that I recorded in 2007, you can do so by going to our website and there you will find the full collection of over 60 recordings made in the North Tipperary area, straggling the uh, shores of Loch Derg. My name is Morris O'Keefe and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.